0: Hello and welcome to another instalment of the Double Disillusionists. My name is Dom Knight, and my co-host, fresh from the launch of his latest book, Something Malcolm Turnbull, Something Else, is Mr. Andrew <laughs> P. Street. Hello, Andrew.
1: It's a catchy title, I got to say. I wish I'd gone with that. Uh,
0: have you discovered so far that that putting the word Malcolm Turnbull on a book makes it sell more than the Tony Abbott one or less?
1: Look, the the data's not quite in yet. Um, I I know that. Everybody at Al-Anon is still returning my email, so I assume it's selling okay.
0: That's good. But, but uh, you know, time will time will tell. So you wrote a book about um, election 2016 as it unfolded. We have another guest today who also wrote a book about the election uh, tied in with his own personal life. The book is called Double the Solution, and, frankly, given the name, we really had to have Lee Zachariah on the podcast, and he uh, covered the, the whole thing for Vice. But, Andrew, briefly, making news this week, the Australian government has revealed that they, they no longer investigate reports of UFOs, which is really interesting because you kind of go, did we? And then you kind of go, well, why wouldn't we anymore if we thought it was a good idea? On the grounds that such investigations sap resources and also are stupid, will this also <laughs> lead to cuts in their bunyip investigation unit, Andrew?
1: This is just going to lead to such a, uh, an increase in, in bunyip attacks. I can I can see it now. Look out. You, heard, you heard it here first.
0: Yowie's too.
1: Oh, the the Yowies, if if anything, there's going to be more Yowies. And Parliament is back, baby. And the government looks set to argue some more about the marriage equality plebiscite and whether or not Attorney General George and Solicitor General Justin Gleeson, will ever be able to play together nicely again. And everybody, of course, was completely distracted by the car crash that was the second debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in the US, which makes me, for one, yearn for a far far more genteel electioneering.
0: I think car crash is kind, frankly. I mean, (laughs) unless the two sides just basically played chicken and neither was willing to swerve. Um, Our special guest this week has experienced all the magic um, of election 2016, the election that never ended, um, while going through some personal dramas as well. Um, He's written about it in the book, Double Dissolution, while covering the campaign for Vice, as I mentioned. Lee Zachariah, hello to you. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. Good day. Good day, Good now, day. Look, both of you have written books, but but Lee, yours has some special source that Andrew is really, <laughs> really does not have.
2: Well, yeah, unless – I haven't had a chance to read Andrews yet, but I'm I'm hoping he didn't also write about my marriage breakdown. I will check soon. Uh, There there was quite a bit about your marriage breaking down. Sure. It was only three or four chapters. Well, I I imagine you've probably got better sources than I do on that. Um, uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, I I was – I I have a a very personal uh, take on this election because – I actually got married uh, before the last election, just as la- the 2013 election was about to happen, and um, and then my wife and I moved to London around the same time as Turnbull took over. So we're all about a fresh start, and then we broke up right before the uh, the parliament was dissolved. and And so when when that happened, I, I suddenly realised I had a lot at stake in in how this election. Uh, went, and I thought, uh, you know what? If if the coalition can pull a win out of this, then maybe my fate is tied to them so closely that I can pull a win out of this as well, and maybe you know save the marriage. Who knows?
0: Oh my gosh! So so is, was it Malcolm Turnbull or Tony Abbott who is your spirit animal?
2: Well, that's a very interesting uh, question because certainly when I began, I thought it was uh, Malcolm Turnbull, and then. When I went to Manly in search of Tony Abbott, I started to realize that uh, I was probably
1: close more closely aligned with him. That's that's not a good re- revelation
2: to have. No, it wasn't that's it wasn't not, a- not gonna
1: do one's heart good.
2: No, no, definitely not.
0: So th- this um this essentially is explains why people would want to go on the campaign trail for about a million years, which is how long this election went for. And you Basically, without wanting to, I mean, it, I think you're pretty upfront in the book. You, you pretty much manufactured your role on the campaign trail as a kind of a, a pretext in, in a way. I mean, this, this was an extraordinary thing that you did. I mean, why? Generally, you would think wild horses would be required to drag people out onto the trail, but you, uh, you sorted out. I did. I uh,
2: had had I not, I probably still would have been. In London, writing articles from the other side of the world based on things I was reading in the news, uh, and uh, but no, I, I realised, you know, fairly quickly that I needed a project, I needed something to focus all of my energy on because uh, I just been walking around in a daze for three months, and this was probably the best thing to do.
0: Was and the thought to find something more depressing than your personal circumstances, <laughs> or or to well, it. Essentially... <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah it was looking it, it was uh, it was a search for answers it was a search for uh you know maybe if I if I really if if I look deep into the soul of the government I will see myself reflected back and uh, and that's not something you would normally hope for but I was, <laughs> I was
1: in a pretty dark place back in may so yeah if you gaze deep into the Dutton the Dutton gazes into you you realize that. <laughs> yes yes there, there was one thing I mean I don't I don't want to accuse you of, of of kind of burying the lead with with your book at all, but I felt that there was that moment where you clearly met sort of the man who who look again. I, I'm, writing a book is hard. I, I know that myself. Uh, I don't want to criticise, mm-hmm. but your guru turns up and and is full of wisdom and is full of helpful advice. Like for example, I I for one did not know. The, how, how many houses could be built on a battle axe block. But your, <laughs> your story of a crazy person just yelling non sequiturs mm. at, at, at an election booth, I, I was like, I could read about this guy for the rest of my life and possibly follow him sort of, you know, to some sort of mass suicide. And, uh you know, I... Look, I, I think that's the obvious sequel myself, Hunt This Man
2: Down. Yeah, I was uh, afraid that when my Vice article went up about him that he would hunt me down, so I got out of uh, <laughs> Parramatta pretty quickly. Tell us um, the story, Lee. So this is a guy, I, I had no idea who you were talking about in that in that lead-up, Andrew. I thought, oh, does he mean Xenophon or Windsor? Who, which, which,
1: which politician I spoke to? Is he <laughs> Oh, about- I, 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 w- I wend. I wend, I do.
0: So, yeah, yeah, we're talking about workers on the campaign trail, and and one of the most fascinating things about hearing from someone who's actually gone out on it is that you get a sense of the kind of people who are deeply emotionally invested in political parties and go out and campaign for them, Lee, such as
2: such as uh, the, uh, the the people standing outside the uh, the pre-poll. Station In Parramatta, uh, an incredibly interesting uh, array of volunteers for all of the parties and all of the independents, a fascinating microcosm of society. And if I'd just spoken to those people, I would have enough material for a book. But then this guy comes along and... Plants his three overstuffed shopping bags down and begins lecturing everybody. I have no idea what he was on. I hope I never ingest it. Um, but he just just these non sequiturs. He was incredibly eloquent, but nothing he said made sense. And he had these rehearsed <laughs> statements, and he had these things he was interested in. Nobody had any idea what he was talking about. We're not very, talking about the the
1: presidential debate here, right? No, is... sorry, I should have hmm. specified. Yeah. Yeah, I hear the sound just of someone in.
0: unzipping, by the way. I'm not going to ask what that was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this is an amazing thing because the, this is someone who's personally invested in the pre-poll and was out there for weeks, presumably, badgering passers-by. It's very strange. I mean, w- watching this this up close, how the whole thing works. I once gate gatecrashed a, a, uh, a victory party of John Howard's at the Wentworth Hotel, and they were all there in the room, all the party faithful who'd been panning out all day in the sun. And and frankly, it had a couple of shardies too many by the time I got there. But a lot of people out there, there are still true believers out there. Um, Some of them, though, are are deeply eccentric. They are. I don't
2: think this guy had any uh, real political affiliation up until the moment he came across all of these volunteers. I think he just saw a captive audience and uh, and went for it. Um, I'd be amazed if he... Even thought about the election up until that point, um, but uh, but certainly I don't know. I, I, having spoken to some of the volunteers there,
1: I can't you know really claim he was any crazier than than they were. Well, I was going to say, I mean, like you you say he had no political affiliation, but any money, you know, next New South Wales election, he'll be standing for the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> Yeah, I think any
2: party that promises him a seat on the spaceship that's hiding in the tail of a comet, he's
0: <laughs> he's there. It's good to hear the Raelians are back, though. I was wondering where they'd gotten gotten to. So it's interesting because part of the um, part of the book is you contrasting Canberra and the way that it works, and you're you're wandering around Parliament House and examining examining the results of this process with the way it's made and the way that the election works. And I get the sense that your impression of of Canberra is that it's quite a a strange place and and divorced from reality if that if that word is not an uncomfortable one at this point.
2: Yeah, every time I go there, it feel it feels like it's I don't know it's it's that it's a a sort of domed city like it feels like there should be a big glass dome around it. It's uh, it's it's got a very strange vibe to it and it and it does feel disconnected from, uh, I guess it's because it's one of the few sort of major cities that isn't near a coast, so it's also got that element mm. of isolation to it. But um, it, it certainly does feel different from from every other place. I, I've, I've
1: always felt that it's kind of got that sort of Jonathan Swiftian element where it, it feels, feels like that was what he had in mind when he wrote about Laputa in Gulliver's Travels, just this sort of mm. place of pure reason full of mad people that has absolutely nothing to do with anywhere else and kind of floats above in the sky somewhere. Canberra's in the sky, right? I've only been there a few times. It is. It is. It's very hard to get to, but...
0: um, (laughs) Certainly high above sea level. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So when you went out um, and got up close to politicians, did did you find that they were uh, more impressive or less impressive than you expected in terms of the actual retail side of politics, in terms of actually talking to voters and trying to win them over?
1: Mm. Because it did I, seem like like Sarah Hanson Young and, and Nick Xenophon in particular, I mean, they, they get some solid quote in the book, so I'm, mm. I'm assuming they were compelling as human beings. Well, they were, but it, it's also,
2: I, I mean, I have a very biased sample of politicians because the ones who are willing to talk to somebody who's you know from Vice uh, that they've never heard of before are, are the ones who are probably a more personable in general and B have less to lose by sort of not being one of the two <laughs> majors um so i did get xenophon i got sarah hansen young and i got you know carl catter and i got tony windsor and all these people who who, di- who didn't have as much to lose as uh, as all the people who turned me down for interviews like cory bernardi and anthony albanese and so on um the, the only person I really was able to successfully confront who did not want to talk to me uh, was Kelly O'Dwyer, and she was very, very pleasant to me as she explained that she wasn't going to talk to me because she was only talking to human beings. <laughs> that was I,
1: one, I, of, I, one, of, one, of, one of the highlights, I thought.
2: I misquoted either. her slightly there, in fairness. <laughs>
1: To be fair, I think Kelly O'Dwyer misquotes Kelly O'Dwyer slightly <laughs> if her Q&A appearances are anything to go by.
0: Yes, this election was particularly unusual in that there was such a focus on not making mistakes and such a focus on trying to protect both leaders from that sort of situation. I mean, the the, the infamous uh, Malcolm Temple pulls out of walking around a Western Sydney-type situation. Did you see any evidence of that up close when you were out there? Did you see the extent to which... Um, the campaigns were being monitored by kind of media slash spin people?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I haven't had a lot of experience, you know, being sort of inside, like or on the campaign bus. And so, you know, I I had this impression on the outside that once I got in, I'd be sort of in the centre of it. I'd be privy to everything that was happening. And the moment I got on the bus, I realised it was Almost the least interesting place to be because uh, you know I got no, you know, contact with uh, with, with Turnbull or anyone who was travelling with him, with the exception of uh, Scott Morrison, who shook my hand only because he thought I was a Qantas employee. Um, <laughs> I love
1: that. To be fair, you, you have that Qantas vibe
2: about you. I've always tried to project more of an ANSET thing, but I'm kind of glad that it was mistaken
0: <laughs> for Qantas. You, you, you were handing him peanuts and preference. a refresher towel at the time, to be fair.
2: Yeah, that that is that is true. I I was offering extra headphones and everything, but um, he yeah, and and you're sort of kept at a distance. They're very very stage managed, and and yeah, I, I didn't quite get the value. I mean, I get I I understood the value of having a handful of reporters there from the major networks and a few newspapers to ask the questions that must be put during the ten minute doorstop. You get there are certain things you need a quote from Turnbull on, but the rest of us are just sort of there to as stenographers to watch a very very stage managed thing take place. And after two days on the bus, I just went, nah, I'm I'm going to take I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to Adelaide and
1: see what's happening there, see if I can track down, uh, you know, Bernardi or someone. Well, that was more or less what Alice Workman said when we were talking talking to her about her time on the on the campaign trail, and it's all all through. Um, Mark DeStefano's book as well, because mm. he, he was very much on the sort of in in the bus and wondering why the hell am I in the bus? I mean, by, by the end of his book, I was convinced that maybe this was just all some sort of plan to prevent journalists from going out and actually getting stories by ensuring that they were all in the one spot where... If necessary, they could just lock the doors and, and roll it off a cliff.
0: Also, the yeah. bus never leaves. I mean, that's just they're just pictures broadcasting <laughs> on the window.
1: Um, it's, it's just like, staffers running past with trees. Like the people who
0: fake the moon landing do that. But it, one of the things that, that's been said about the, the progression of this whole thing is that um, senior journalists don't go out on the trail anymore. They stay back in the capital cities and file pieces. It's the juniors who go out on the on the bus. It's the uh, the twenty something. Keen kids who are trying to, to to do it, and so the questions that are asked are often passed on from head office and all that kind of stuff, which I guess must have made the experience feel even more surreal. If it's almost like a a bus full of kids on their way to summer camp,
2: I will say they're all a lot younger than I was expecting. Um, there was uh, there were a lot of fresh faces there, um, but uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. It it does seem like it's not the place you would want to be if you had enough clout and enough experience to really write a lot about the election. It's the last place you'd want to be. I mean, election night itself, I was there at the, at the hotel with, you know, at Turnbull's party Mm. and I could not get over how boring it was and how, you know, I, I got a, a text from my mate Dave in Melbourne saying, Oh, you should be here. I'm watching it on TV. And as the night progressed, I realized that I would have got more information had I been hanging out with Dave or watching it on TV
1: <laughs> than Dave's there. very good. Dave, um, Dave's got
2: insights. He does. And I recommend all, all political journalists uh, just you know hang out with Dave at the next election.
0: But this is the thing this election particularly seemed so devoid of content, so bloodless, passionless, and to almost be about nothing that. I get this, and particularly to be so long, but Lee. I wonder if you chose the the worst possible election to try and cover. Particularly if you were trying to take your mind off off personal matters. I mean, how well did that project work as um, as you went through the the election? Oh, it could have. I could have
2: kept going. Um, it was for a start. It took because I was so so new to this. It took me a month to get accreditation. So for that first month, I'm sort of you know driving around the country, uh,
0: emailing. Yeah.
2: You know the Turnbull office as I go, and you would have
0: uh, missed out in most elections. You it would have yeah. ended before you got accreditation, but not this one. No, a- I,
2: I needed a long run up, and uh, and to be <laughs> honest, given the uh, given what I was going through at the time, and and the fact that the the road trip element of 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 the coverage was so vital to it. You know, I was. I, I, I did find that I couldn't sit still for very long. I, you know After two days in any given town or city, I was ready to, to pack up and drive off. And, uh, and that momentum really helped. And, and when, when I was getting to the end of the election, I was actually thinking, God, what am I going to do when this is over? I'm going to have to sit still. And, uh, and I did try pitching my publisher a book about the US election, hmm. uh, where I drive around America and cover that. <laughs> um, but I think they, uh, they recognized that that was an entirely self-serving idea, and uh,
1: that never eventuated. Yeah. Well, you know, the Pakistan elections not far away. I mean, you could <laughs> you could just go roam roam the planet as a uh, just continually trying to make sense of other people's elections.
0: Well, yeah. Why... Yeah, Sorry. Lee Zachariah turns up and and makes sense of it, anything. Look, uh, maybe a a local council election, there's there's always another election Ask Anthony Green.
2: Mm. Very true. Very true. I'm not, I mean, I, I'm not worried about running out of elections. It's running out of uh, marriages that
1: might cause. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, you, you don't have to have a, a, a sort of a marriage end for each one. I mean, wait, wait you know, what? Like, yeah, look, I, I've made I made the same mistake. So you know, huh. let, let me let me assure you, you, you can just have the one.
2: Oh god, that'll that'll save me so much time. Uh, oh, that's, and that's really and, and
1: boxes.
0: <laughs> but it, ma- it does make it a unique memoir, really, that you are um, dealing with the, the national, the big picture, and the personal, and there's quite a bit of desolation in, in both um, arenas, really. I mean, we, we called this podcast The Double Disillusionists because we kind of picked, you know, being the oracles that Andrew and I are, that this election would be a new low in, in terms of national disillusionment. You were, t- were talking about a different kind of dissolution, of course, um, both personally and given what happened with the uh, with the Parliament. But uh, this election, as everyone's pointed out, has been a record experience in terms of voter disillusionment. We've seen One Nation doing very well, uh, Nick Xenophon's team doing very well, uh, minor parties, and and anyone who isn't just more of the same has been um, killing it really in the past couple of electoral cycles. Out there with voters talking to people, did you get any sense of why that is? Did you get to see that uh, disillusionment up close?
2: I, th- I think there's a very uh, a very trendy way of talking about politics where somebody who wa- who doesn't want to cause controversy or who is genuinely disaffected by politics in general will say, "Oh, they're just as bad as each other." Uh, there was one guy in in Eden Monero that I was talking to who said, Oh, can I put them both last, and, and then he struggled to think who would be second last? Like he didn't want <laughs> either. And and but I think he was so passionate about that, and the people who were to, who were talking about those the minor parties and the independents were so passionate that that yeah, it does feel like there is there is a, a, a dissatisfaction, and that people feel maybe they have permission to be a bit more ideal, idealistic about a candidate who reflects their views, regardless of who that candidate is aligned with.
0: Mm. So had that you're, you're talking
2: about Paul Hansen, right? I am. I didn't want to say the name, but you caught <called> me out. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, I mean, this is true. I mean, Nick Xenophon as well has that outsider appeal, mm. even though he's basically been in Parliament now for quite a, a long time. And how did you feel emotionally about your own political alignment as you went through this process? Did you at any point rethink your own beliefs?
2: Well, I, I've never, I don't know, I, I've, always, I've always struggled to sort of support a party. I, I find party politics incredibly essential to the to the running of a democracy, but they never appeal to me personally. And so I, it, it was a very strange feeling to, to think, okay, well, my personal narrative means that what I need to happen is the coalition to win again. And the idea <laughs> to that save
0: I, the relationship.
2: To save the relationship, I thought <laughs> you know that that that's very important uh, that that happens, and I won't tell you the result of the election because that's kind of spoils the end of the book. Yeah, <laughs> but but I did. Uh, but it it was it was almost freeing having a strong a political opinion that had absolutely nothing to do with my own politics.
1: Yeah, that that's actually kind of refreshing. I I, I like the idea of. I'm pretty sure this is why people bet on things, is mm. so they can care about something that objectively doesn't matter. Well, it's exactly. a win-win.
0: Yeah, yeah if, if, if one scenario means relationships is saved, the other scenario means something else, maybe that's your political view, I can kind of see the, the appeal of it. So you travel around the country. What would you say to anyone doing the trip in future in terms of places to skip and places to make sure they visit? Can you Can you pass some of your... Travelogue experience on The to, highlights to of
1: beautiful, beautiful Dixon.
2: <laughs> well, I, I have to say that the places that people typically go, you know, when they travel around Australia, uh, I, I don't think you should go there. I mean, I've, I've lived in the Gold Coast. I've lived in Sydney and yet they're not – I wouldn't recommend necessarily going there for a holiday. Um, but it's all those little out-of-the-way places that if you drive to one of these places and you take a circuitous route – these little towns, sort of along the coast or through the country, uh, they're the places that you know. Maybe, maybe that's just I have a very, very uh, strange approach to uh, to to holidaying. But uh, those are the places I get the most out of, and uh, and that's what I would
1: recommend: is uh, road tripping. Do Do you have to pick, as far as holiday destinations go, somewhere where they a, a, a charismatic, independent, fighting against all odds to try and. Uh... <laughs> to try and turn things around. I mean, you know, do you kind of look at that and say, well, if Kathy McGowan was here, I would definitely spend a week. But otherwise, sod, sod this. I'm driving through.
2: Well, as far as I can tell, and I, uh, you know, just based on that, those two months, uh, every town has their own Mr. Smith going to Washington, and
1: uh, <laughs> and it's and it's a big appeal of each of each town. And you missed him in Parramatta. I can't believe this. I mean, he was clearly. <laughs> The political seer that this country has been looking for, the man who is finally going to do something about our battle axe blocks and <laughs> and shopping. it, I, it was. I've forgotten what else he was talking about, but there was a lot.
2: He was talking about uh, hydroponics being grown on the moon. On the moon,
1: uh, yes. Uh, uh, maybe he Why are we growing hydroponics on the moon? Canberra, where are we standing
0: on we, this? We're totally growing them on the moon. Just don't tell
1: anyone. Don't tell the RAAF. We're not looking at UFOs anymore. This is why they're trying to keep up a moon hydroponics secret. Well, look, The scales An- are fallen from my eyes. <laughs> Andrew, I will
2: send you I, – I took a lot of photos of this guy, most of which didn't get published. I will send them to you, and I reckon it would take maybe 20 minutes standing on a street corner in Parramatta before you track them down.
1: <laughs> oh, it's He'll
0: find deal. you. <laughs> Very <laughs> he'll likely. He'll definitely find you. I,
1: I, I, I feel like he'll sense
2: me through the ether. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would. I think he would if you uh, – no, I can't say that. He'll he'll track me down and sue me. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I have a lot of opinions on the sort of thing that you could do to attract his attention, the sort of thing you could offer to sell or perhaps buy. Yeah, uh,
0: we can read between those lines. But it's interesting you mentioned particularly Eden Monero. I mean, there's, for a long time now, I've just thought, why do we bother having elections anywhere else? We could just have it in Eden Monero and there goes the nation. Of course, this time uh, it, its bellwether status ended. But it's interesting, isn't it? Just how few electorates, um, generally, the result turns on. And you visited a bunch of them. I mean, is there anything special about them? Do the people seem particularly contentious? You know, if you're in the shop buying a, a sandwich, is there a debate along lines about whether it's cheese or ham? I mean, <laughs> did you get any sense of of why these places are as close as they are?
2: Uh, I. Well, the sense I got is that the moment they, they see someone who identifies themselves as a journalist asking about the election, they roll their eyes because they've just had 50 that day already. <laughs> um, certainly the, ta- uh, the, the town of Dalmini, which was considered the the bellwether's bellwether. It was the the swing town in eden Monero that always voted the way of, of the electorate. Um, there are 2,000 people who live there, and, uh, and, yeah, they... Uh, and I, you spoke I, to all of them. I, I did. I spoke to all of them. I worked out who the bellwether voter is, and uh, every three years we're just going to call that guy, and he'll decide. It's the
0: same time. but you do—you did say during during your your adventures in in Dalmany that that was it. You, you were convinced that Turnbull was going to narrowly yeah. scrape ahead, and uh, without wanting to give away the ending, maybe. I've just ruined it, haven't I? Sorry. No, buddy.
2: that's all right. That's all right. No, because I think it's uh, it's important that you know everyone said that Eden Monero has lost its bellwether status, and they're right. But Dalmini has, I mean, Dalmini had, had it uh, was going to win either way because if they went Labor, then they're still Ed Monero's bellwether, and if they go uh, the Coalition, then they're still the country's bellwether. <laughs> so this was a win-win for them, and they are now uh, the the primary place in the country to uh, to get your political forecasts from.
0: It, easy the the Dale effect is wonderful now um we talked <laughs> I've talked previously to to Mark and Alice of BuzzFeed about what it's like covering election for i guess an emerging internet based media outlet um you were recovering the uh, th- the election for vice before they annexed s b s um and now they're part of the federal government, but back in the day you know a couple of months ago, I guess you probably had some of the same kind of treatment vice as a bit of an outsider too. The process. What mm. was that part of it like? Actually, working for that particular outlet.
2: Well, it was it was quite interesting, particularly in terms of the reaction I would get. Uh, so, fifty percent of the uh, the responses were, um, uh, "What's Vice? What 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 do you cover? What what's the web address for that Vice? I've, I've never heard of that." And the other half was like, "Oh yeah, don't worry, we know Vice. We know exactly what it is." And uh, and it was interesting to sort of. Uh, you know, I mean, Vice does carve out a very particular niche in the pop culture sphere, and uh, and seeing who was aware of it, whose radar it was on, and whose it wasn't was uh, was quite interesting. But um, but yeah, I, th- I think uh, the advantage of, of of writing for somewhere like Vice is that you can talk about uh, incredibly serious things, and then when you get sick of that. You can put up wanted posters of Peter Dutton and just take photos of yourself doing that, <laughs> and it, it fits the brand.
1: I've been putting up wanted posters of Peter Dutton for a very long time now, sure, and yourself. and no one, you know, like it's never really fit. I feel with my brand, so um, so I'm glad that that this is very much a uh, a unique situation for me rather than the universal experience.
2: Yeah, it doesn't work for everyone. It's got, <laughs> mm. yeah. It when,
0: was one of the greatest parts of the election, though, as we discussed before the. The missing Peter Dutton, it certainly. It was an election that was relatively light on entertainment, and particularly, given Vice's position in the kind of stuff you're probably looking for. Did you feel election twenty sixteen deliveredly in terms of content and substance, or were you largely finding yourself railing against the lack thereof?
2: Yeah, I was. I was railing the whole time. I mean, I, you know, I went out on the bus. Well, and...
1: That is very Vice, isn't it? Just rails. <laughs> rail, rail, <Yes.
2: laughs>
0: rail upon rail.
1: I uh, Yeah, no,
2: I, I mean, the, the days that I actually covered Turnbull on the bus were unprintable. I would write up articles and and my editor would quite rightly say, this is pretty boring. And I went, yeah, I know, but I devoted a whole day to this side to write something. And then I'd have to go out and generate stories or talk to more interesting people and, and sort of make, you know, because there are, I mean, there are always interesting things happening in the election. They're just not always to do with the major candidates they're not always the headlines so you've sort of it's it's not necessarily that going out and creating news out of whole cloth but it is huh. finding the 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 quirkier corners but and what you're to- saying
0: what you're saying i mean that is a phenomenal thing to say that by virtue of going on the prime minister's bus the supposed epicenter of the campaign mm. all the things you were seeing were so boring mm. they couldn't be published that, yeah. that is an indictment of the whole system, surely.
2: It's like trying to cover a hurricane from the eye of the storm. It's like you can't actually see it when you're in the middle of it. You have to step outside a bit and, uh, and you know, get killed by a flying cow. And that's the only <laughs> way to really see what's happening with the storm.
1: And also right in the middle of the storm, it's basically a vacuum. So the, the, I, think, <laughs> I think the analogy works very well. It
0: certainly does. Yes. But, but it wasn't always that way. I mean, it used to be that the the cavalcade around the leader, Um, followed and and mistakes were made and, you know, um, you go to a pie shop and try and explain the GST and all that kind of stuff. And this time they managed to to dampen all that down and prevent any of that stuff being interesting. But surely this is not a a good thing if if everything that the leader does is so boring, you can't even cover it.
2: Well, I I think uh, that's by design. I mean, you know they've got, and I think a lot of it's to do with the fact that everyone is now a reporter and everyone's got a phone with them and everyone can report something instantly. And you know, there's they have to be a lot more careful if they're going to control the message, and that means being exceptionally boring because at the in in a in a news report at the end of the day, you know that. Thirty seconds of two minutes is going to be devoted to an answer that the prime minister gives on whatever, and you want to sort of make sure that that's the only thing they can possibly report on. Because if if they get too, if they talk to the public too much, and somebody yells at, at Turnbull for for knifing Abbott and all sorts of things, then that becomes the story. And uh, uh, so I, I have I have sympathy for why they would want to make the campaign as boring as possible, mm. uh, even if it doesn't you know serve my own interests. Yeah, well, I mean,
0: that said, you've managed to make it a, 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 a funny and moving account through your essentially your gags about what's going on but also your personal um, situation. I guess that did you realise that this was what, how it was going to play out, that there'd be a personal contrast between what's going on for you, which is all very serious and real, yeah. and the campaign? I mean, did you always intend to include your, your um, personal life in it or was that something that you did retrospectively as part of the effort to, I guess... Make make it more interesting because often yeah, we, oftentimes were you you're into more dramatic. This by,
1: by Dutton, if <laughs> Dutton had only been a bit more interesting, maybe we we wouldn't you wouldn't have had to do this autopsy on your own marriage.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I I I mean, I certainly blame Peter Dutton for a lot, and I'm willing to add this to the list. Uh But it's no, it was at the beginning when I first pitched the book. It was I, I thought it was going to be a collection of my Vice articles, and then it sort of changed. The publisher was interested, but wanted uh wanted a more personal angle and when they said that I, I was thinking well what personal angle could and then suddenly I realized exactly what it was and mm. and any other time in my life you know I'm I'm, I'm usually loath to talk about my personal life in public which is going to sound very disingenuous given what I'm promoting right now <laughs> but um it was just it just caught me at the right time where I realized that you know I, I I deal with things by writing about them, and I wasn't—I hadn't been dealing with the marriage breakdown at all well up until that point. And I thought, if I'm gonna get through this, I probably need to write a book about it, and it worked.
0: Yeah, it did, makes did, did it help you? It,
2: it did. No, it, it absolutely did. I mean, the yeah, the the process of writing the book and I guess sort of putting all those thoughts out. You know, and, and paralleling them with what I was doing at the time, and the road trip of it all, and the politics of it all, and it was all sort of. It did help in the end, and uh, and I'm I'm just glad I could invite the rest of the country to be part of this uh, uh, very personal therapy session.
0: <laughs> yes, and look, it certainly <laughs> makes it a unique entry in the annals of political reporting as well. And some of the books this year have been. In mean, Mark Mark's book, shows some of the I guess dark side of the way these things work. Andrew's book is just the sort of stuff Andrew does. But, um, <laughs> you know, so well, know, he does, so well. But, um, bam, 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 bam. Yeah, but th- this is, I don't know. There's something about the mixing of the, of the personal and the, the, the national that, 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 really works. Anyway, Lee, um, thank you very much for, for telling us about it. The book is double dissolution, not to be confused with this podcast, uh, or indeed reality. Let's just <laughs> briefly touch on what else has been going on. Uh, because that's what we, we generally do. The, the UFOs. Now, Andrew, just recount this one for us because I'm, you know, I don't know what to believe, QX-Files theme.
1: Look, I, I'm just shocked that this only broke today because it, it turns out that the RAAF were investigating UFOs in the past and then sort of like through the 60s and the 70s, they sort of had active investigations and then the 80s, they kind of started going, well, th- this is silly, why are we doing this? And then the 90s, they just stopped. They just stopped doing it. And they haven't actually gotten around to mentioning that they're no longer investigating until, what, 25 years later. And so it turns out that that, that all of those letters that you've been sending in about the scary light that that arrives every morning, creeps across the sky, and then vanishes below the horizon in a sort of a a great orange fireball, um, no one's taking them seriously. The RAAF are no longer investigating on the grounds that... Apparently, only three percent of of their investigations turned out to not have an incredibly straightforward answer, and uh, and and it should be pointed out that those three percent almost certainly have a very straightforward answer. It's just that they couldn't, you know, they weren't there as a duck flew by, and therefore couldn't go. Well, that'd be a duck.
0: But what if there, if three percent, Andrew, of things are out there, if they're all aliens, that's that's a massive number. That that's a huge number.
1: Look, we know that they're not really aliens. It's just bunyips. It's bunyips That's what they want us dressing to up, dressing up and pretending to to be from the skies. And I and it worries me that we're not we're not taking the bunyips seriously. Space series, bunyips. Then. Oh
0: my god. Um, Lee, oh my god. I'm just thinking: is is it a coincidence that when you went to Peter Dutton's electorate in one of the funny passages in the book, you couldn't find him, and they didn't know where he was? And in, this, in the very same year, we've stopped looking for UFOs. The mysterious disappearances unexplained portents, Lee.
2: If there was a way for me to uh, accurately do the Donald Subtle and Invasion of the Body Snatchers scream at you right now uh, over the podcast, then I would. Uh, I think that would be an appropriate answer.
0: Um, sorry. Good whistling, Andrew. <laughs> I'm not paying for rights on that. <laughs> that was not the X-Files theme. It was just some random whistles. But, uh, yeah. Sorry. Are, are you comforted by this news, Lee, or are you even more frightened? Uh,
2: look, I, I am, I am just concerned, and, and certainly you mentioned uh, Peter Dutton in relation to this. I don't think that's any coincidence that. You know, we're very, very concerned in this country about um, you know refugees coming via boat. We don't care so much when they come by plane. I think this is basically a green light uh, for, for for people smugglers that if they come by UFO, uh, my god, the
0: source of people,
1: yeah, it's
2: full of stars, exactly. And uh, and I think this is, this is you know an entirely reasonable uh, business model for someone looking to to, to smuggle people into the country.
0: <laughs> if we can't track the immigration minister. Who can we track?
1: Yes, <laughs> I wonder. Oh my God wheels within wheels oh. within <laughs> wheels? Well,
0: and it's all like that old like flying saucers.
2: It's that old Latin phrase, you know. Who 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 tracks the immigration minister? Who who watches the? No, hang on. How does it go? I forget.
1: Who who border forces the border force? I think that's is the, is the term you're looking for. That's it. Thank you. Uh, and finally,
0: <laughs> uh, look. The I guess the other story is is George Brandis, the great. Lawyer off at this Attorney General versus the Solicitor General. Quite an awkward affair. Um, We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it because it gets very, very technical and legally. And frankly, we've uh, gone on long enough. Andrew, what's going to happen? Who gets to win this?
1: I, I genuinely don't know because I, I think under normal circumstances, it would just die a death. But it, it's kind of escalated now to a point where the Solicitor General and the Attorney General can't, as best I can work out, work together. And it's going to force one of them to kind of uh, capitulate. And it doesn't look like it's going to be Gleason at this point. And if it turns out to be Brandis, who has to sort of, uh, you know, take a slap on the wrist and go and sit in the naughty corner for a while, even if he doesn't end up sort of resigning or being forced to resign or being forced to be abducted by Martians or something, then... I can't see Labour not making hay of this because they they're going hard at the moment. The 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 that's one of the big plans for the Senate today is to try and force a, a Senate investigation. Yeah,
0: we're having this conversation during this question times rather than actually uh, listening to them. And and Lee, look we know he's got the bookshelves. Mm. Uh, have you considered going down and giving him a copy of your book by hand? He's um, got the space. Yeah, that's this, true.
1: This is We pay for it. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could even do a large print version just to help fill out that uh, <laughs> that space. Um, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Maybe maybe he should get a signed copy.
1: Yeah. Maybe we should put together like a little a little pack of yeah. you know, all all of the the mini books that have come out in the last about <laughs> half last a dozen a the month. There, I know it's it's become a cottage industry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it certainly has. All right, look, Lee. All the best with with the book slash personal life slash uh, future reporting career. Thank you so much, alternative media. It's been great having <laughs> you with us today. Oh, it's um, been
1: great to be on. Cheers,
0: Andrew P. Street. All the best with your book, whose title? Even though I was um, given the honour of launching it, I, I, I can't remember what is it again.
1: It is the curious story of Malcolm Turnbull, the incredible shrinking man in the top hat. It's a very long title. I've got. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Ironic, it is really Too long
0: to remember that the title is about shrinking, isn't it? Um, now we will be discussing said book at Giant Dwarf when we do the podcast live. I think it's Thursday. November the 24th but uh, I can say that it, tickets have started to sell. I can't tell you that they're almost sold out but uh, I think it's going to be great. We'll announce the guests soon. Andrew will be there. I will be there. Um, at, you know the books will be there to buy um, and so do join us. You can get tickets from giantdwarf.com.au. The podcast you can subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher just the app of your choice and we'll catch up again in a week. See ya!